calling Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. We're in the St. Jerome Parish, conveniently located in the Sentinella Adobe Corridor, right next door to the Korean United Methodist Church. Leave a message and we will get right back to you. Thanks. Hello, uh, Denny. I just wanted to say that I've really, really been enjoying your show very, very much. I love basketball and baseball and beach volleyball, and I sure love everything to do with sports. It makes my heart pound, and it makes me so happy. (laughs) Take care, Denny. Good luck with everything. Bon voyage. The NCAA doesn't always get things right. In fact, most of the time they're wrong. Okay, okay, they're almost always wrong. But one thing they do well, quite well in fact, is March Madness. There is nothing like the NCAA men's basketball tournament. But it wasn't always that way. In the 1930s and 40s, the National Invitation Tournament, or NIT, was held in higher regard. The NIT was played in one venue, the mecca of basketball of the time, Madison Square Garden. The glamour and the power of the media in New York City made the NIT a more attractive option for teams. And while the NCAA Championship Tournament chose only one team from each region, the NIT Tournament was able to choose teams from anywhere and often cash in on natural rivals and teams that were playing at their best at the end of the season. Then, in a need to raise money for World War II war efforts, the champions of both the NCAA and NIT tournaments played each other for three years. From 1943 to 1945, the American Red Cross sponsored a postseason game between each tournament's champions. These became considered as the real games for the national championship. The NCAA champion prevailed in all three games, and the balance of power shifted to the NCAA tournament. Moving into the 50s, the NCAAs were moving into supreme madness, with great players like Elgin Baylor carrying Seattle University to the championship game in 1958, and Jerry West doing the same for West Virginia in 1959. Both Baylor in 58 and West in 59 were so spectacular in the tournament that they were named the most outstanding players despite being on the second-place teams. The two stars would reunite in Los Angeles and raise the Laker franchise into basketball lore. Right now, we'd like to share an RIP to the late, great superstar that shone brighter than any of them, Elgin Baylor. He died this past week. Baylor was not only a dominant force for years in the NBA, but was a true patriot for his country and an active social justice advocate. And I always seemed to resonate uh, and felt a closeness with two or three guys on that team. And I just loved Elgin Baylor as a person. Mm-hmm. Okay, I absolutely loved him and admired him uh, for a lot of different reasons. From 1964 to 1975, Coach John Wooden would rule over the tournament, leading the UCLA Bruins to 10 NCAA championships in 12 years, a period of dominance that will never be repeated. Then a drought hit the West. No school west of the Rockies would win the tournament for 15 years. It would take the NCAA's favorite target for wrongdoings, the affable and enigmatic Hall of Fame coach Jerry Tarkanian, who, like Wooden in 64, used a suffocating full-court press to launch his running rebels of the University of Las Vegas to the title. 
That year also brought us one of the most inspirational stories in the history of the tournament as the little school that could, Loyola Marymount of Westchester, California, set NCAA season scoring records with their up-tempo style, then lost their top player, Hank Gathers, who tragically died on the court at the West Coast Conference Tournament. The Lions rally behind a spirit to make a run to the Elite Eight, blowing out the defending champion Michigan Wolverines along the way. It was a 12-year run that nabbed UCLA 10 banners, but it took an excruciating 20 years for spoiled Bruin fans to get another. In 1995, led by the frost phenom Toby Bailey, UCLA captured number 11. Bailey scored 26 points and grabbed 9 rebounds in the championship game victory. Just two years later, it was back to the desert as Arizona, led by their classy coach, Lute Olson, won the school's first championship and the Pac-10 slash Pac-12 16th NCAA Tournament Championship. Then, some kind of hate fell upon the West, especially the Pac-12. Whether that was a mismanagement in the way of TV and endorsement deals, an East Coast bias, or an NCAA Tournament Committee's lack of respect, it's been 23 years since a team from out West has won it all. But today, the West is flexing its mountainous muscles. As we sit here, the Pac-12 has won 9 of 10 games in the 2021 tournament. Heading into the March Madness Sweet 16, four Pac-12 teams will join the number one seeded and undefeated Gonzaga Bulldogs out of the state of Washington. That is some serious Western flavor. As much as we can take shots at the NCAA committee getting it wrong with a selection and seeds this and every other year, who can be mad at the NCAA when March rolls around with the greatest tournament in all of sports? I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan. One that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians. Welcome to audio video podcast number 77 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. This is our March Madness episode where we celebrate the NCAA tournament, the great NCAA basketball madness. Speaking of basketball players that are worth celebrating, here's the producer of Sports Stories, Marley Rice. Yes, my favorite time of year, March Madness. And boy, do I have a good episode in store for you today. So to start off this episode, we're going to give you a little part of our episode with Toby Bailey, who is part of the Bruin squad that won the 1995 NCAA tournament. So we hope you enjoy this little snippet with our interview with Toby Bailey. Hey, Toby, I'm, cu- I'm curious. I know, you know, you headed to UCLA. Were there any other schools that you strongly considered besides UCLA? You know what? Uh, I, I considered Arizona. Um you know, I like Duke because, you know, Grant Hill was, was, was my favorite player back then. Uh, but I, I committed when I was – I think I verbally committed when I was in ninth grade. Uh, my dad went to UCLA. I was UCLA through and through. So I, it, it was really no choice for me. I, I was – you know, my mind was made up. You mentioned Grant Hill and one of the, um, you know, people I always pointed to that really took Duke over the top, you know, in those years was Grant Hill because he did all of the things – that needed to be done within the context of the game, oh, right? Yeah. And and that is, I I actually went back and watched um, the the NCAA 
what was it, the regional finals against UConn that 95 mm -hmm. year, and then yep. your game against Arkansas, both of which like you went for 26 and nine in each of those, which was interesting. Yep. But um, you, you, that's what you did, I think, that took that team over the top. You certainly had Ed, you had Zeta, he provided his force, and then Cameron and Tyus in the backcourt and stuff. But you provided what Grant provided for those Duke teams as, as far as taking what the game gave you. Yeah. And is that how you kind of saw yourself fitting in the system? You know what? It was it was a great situation for me because I wasn't uh, necessarily it wasn't put on my shoulder that I had to score a ton of points and and uh, so I could basically just like you said, uh, freshmen are going to have ups and downs during the season. So I could take what the you know the defense gave me, what the game gave me, let it come to me and. You know, some games I was called on just to, you know, just to be, just to defend. And against uh, Oklahoma, it, it that was what I had to do. Oklahoma, it, we and I think I held. Uh, I think only had like three points, um, but I, I held their their leading scorer Rutherford to, you know, uh, under his average, which was my my goal that game, and we won the game. And so it was it was good because that that team, the entire team. Our whole mindset was just whatever we have to do to win. It was no ego. So if I had three points, I wasn't upset. Uh, I we won the game and it was all good. And, and next game, you know, it might pan out where I needed to step up and have more uh, a more uh, a larger role on the offensive end. But you know, it, it it really was that team was really well put together. Uh, we had a lot of chemistry because we knew each other beforehand. The seniors knew us. The, a lot of the young guys, like I said, I was I was practicing with the O'Bannon brothers. When I was in high, when I was in eighth grade, um, and so they knew me. They they had their eye on me. Uh, I played with 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 Charles and uh, for Slam and Jam, um, you know, for for many years on, on on with Izzy Washington and Slam and Jam, and, and so he and I knew each other. So when we got there, it wasn't a case of the the older guys kind of looking at younger freshmen and didn't really trust them. They knew I, you know, okay, I know Toby. I know what he can do. I. I Seen them play. I played with them for years, and so they trusted us. I trusted and revered them. So I was going to do whatever Ed told me to do. I'd run through a brick yeah. wall for him. So it was a great mix. Getting to that game, you know, uh, a lot of teams have to win that uh, one, maybe call it a lucky game or fortunate game, or put yourself in a position to win. You got to get that one over the top, and that was that Missouri game where Ty Tyus Edney went coast to coast on that play. Do you um, remember that play? in effect being drawn up. And I recently read an article, I think in the LA times, it talked about how Tyus had, had to invent some of those shots because of it, the court he had in his own driveway and he had to get the shot yeah. off against bigger players that would play him in his own driveway. And, and he got that shot off and it went down. And, and that was, you know, without that, nobody gets that title. Completely. Uh, well, we used to, we used to have a drill where we would go uh, every, every practice coach Herrick would do a drill where we would have to get down the court in a certain amount of time and sometimes it was uh sometimes we played one on one full court and we have to get down and you know whatever it was going to be like five seconds or whatnot and um and so I knew Tyus was you know unguardable in that in that drill uh, so I knew, I knew he was best suited for it uh, something you know you know I had my perception of what how that kind of conversation before we went out went because you know sitting there. You know, he, he definitely drew up a play and, you know, it, it was uh, I thought maybe Ed was going to get the ball. Uh, but, you know, we just had a Zoom call that I, you know, that we put together uh, uh, to commemorate the 25th annual of uh, of 
fifth anniversary of the, the championship game a couple months ago. And in that chat, now that we're all grown men, you know, the coaches are actually giving us the details of what happened behind <laughs> the scenes. Uh, so, you know, Coach Herrick said that, you know, he went up to Tyus after everybody kind of, kind of went out to the court and said, you shoot the ball. Like, don't pass the ball, you shoot it. And so, because I know Ed was, if you look at the video, Ed is jumping up at the, the three-point line. He's jumping up, asking for the ball and, and yelling at Tyus. And Tyus, you know, you, you, he doesn't even look towards Ed. He, he had no chance. It wasn't like Ed was guarded. He didn't even look that direction. And now I see why. Like Coach Eric told him, you shoot the ball. So, you know, it, it was a, that was a great, great moment. That was a great moment. Um, that was one of those things. I, I just remember watching it, and, and I was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, yes. You know, it was like, okay, great shot. Hey, speaking of that coaching staff, I mean, you, 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 Lorenzo Romar, Mark Godfrey, and Steve Lavin were your assistant coaches, Crazy. all of which went on to their own, you know, uh, successes as head coaches. Um, that's a pretty impressive staff. Do you were, were you aware of that, you know, being that young as a, a, as a freshman on that team, that you had such a good staff? You know, I didn't know if that was just like a normal college staff. Like it was just, they were, I knew they were all great coaches. The thing that set that team apart that from other teams that I played on and I played on so many teams uh, throughout my life, but the head coach, Coach Herrick was so confident in his coaching ability that he really just, he, he was the overseer of the entire practice and the whole entire team, but he delegated his response, the responsibilities and trusted his assistant so much that, you know, Coach Godfrey would be running offense on one end. Coach Rowe would be working with the, the bigs on the other end. Coach Lavin would run our defensive drills and our defensive scheme. And he really delegated and trusted those guys and, and gave them the ball to run, run with. And then at the end of the day, we would come together and he would be the, the, the final, you know, final judge on, on everything else. But it, it was really beautiful to watch. And then I've, I've gone on to play on other teams where the head coach wanted to be so micromanaging and, and, and really gave his assistants no power. You know, they would, you know, the assistants would tell you one thing and then the coach would basically veto it. And, and yeah. at the end of the day, that, that undercuts their ability and their authority. And the team starts to not respect what the assistant coaches have to say and what they have to offer. And it really hurts your team. And so I always, you know, when I when I talk to head coaches, it, it, I really hope that they all kind of understand that and that dynamic and and would really, you know, if you're going to hire a guy to be your assistant coach, you got to trust them and you got to let him do do his thing. That's um, that's really interesting because, you know, the legacy obviously at UCLA was built by Wooden and it was his assistants who came up with that 2-2-1 press that got mm -hmm. them over the top in 64 you know, to win that championship. And he he was like Coach Herrick, you know, very comfortable in letting his assistants take leadership roles and and never felt threatened by that. Mm -hmm. And I always got that same kind of feeling from Coach Herrick, who who started not far from where I live now at Morningside. I think it was Morningside High School. He used to be a coach there. He just, he grinded and worked his way up into those positions where he took over at Pepperdine and then eventually made it over to UCLA. You know, one thing I was wondering, um, <clears throat> did you feel the weight of Coach Wooden that had been 20 years since he had left the school, but it, it, I just imagine even as a as a freshman, that was the question that came out of reporters' mouth, which yeah. was, 
hey, you haven't won since wooden. What are you guys going to do this or not? You know, it, was that something that followed you around while you were there? Or um, you know, it, it, I think they did a good job of sheltering us. Now, now when you go there to UCLA, especially back in, back then when Coach Wooden was really, you know, he was at every game sit, sitting yeah. there. And, and uh, it, it, it's, it's always in the back of your mind, especially if you're a UCLA kid. And there were a lot of UCLA kids that were there at the time. You know, my, my, my roommate was, uh, was, was Chris Johnson, who was Marcus Johnson's son. And, you know, Marcus was on the last team in 1975 to win it. And that's the year Chris and I were, were born. We were born uh, one day apart in 1975. And so uh, it, for us, it was, it was that. And then one of my close family friends that my dad went to school with was, was Mike Warren. So Mike, Mike would, you know, I've known him since I was a baby and he would, he would take me to coach Wooden's house to, to uh, you know, to, to have, have, have lunch and to, to hang out and, and, you know, he would drop rules here and there on me. And it was just, it was always around. Coach Wooden was always around and his teachings were always around. But if you know coach, if you ever had a chance to interact with Coach Wooden, he never put that kind of pressure on it. And, and you know, it, it was always like, even if you talk to him and you wanted to hear something about basketball, like how, how, what do you think about my game or this and that, it was always we talk about life and I talk about you know Abraham Lincoln and, and stories about that. And it was it was it was really like Phil Jackson where he kind of he would talk about other situations and life uh, situations, but at the end of the day, it came back to you know it would apply to basketball and in life. So it there wasn't that pressure, I don't think, but uh, you know maybe it's just because I was a freshman and I didn't really feel it. Um, that, that's really interesting. You knew, uh, you know, you had that connection to coach when you're that young and Mike Warren, I suppose you're a big fan of Hill Street Blues. I think that's what he was. Oh, yeah. Check this out. Um, I don't know if you can see that, Toby. That's a proud. Yes. Look at that. He called me coach and, and he signed it, John, which I don't oh. know if that's an endorsement of my coaching. <laughs> or, or if he was just being generous like he always is. Matter of fact, um, hold on. If uh, Watch this video um, yeah. my wife Christine just found about Coach, and I think it's when he's at the 95 game. Okay. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's like an interview about that time. Remember what got you here and don't, don't get carried away with anything extra. Just try to uh, uh, let your players think. It, it's not the same as another game, but that's what you want your players to feel that it's, it's just another ball game play your game you look around the building and there was a tremendous buzz in here tonight expectations of a tremendous game right coach? and i expect it to be that and you do too coach oh undoubtedly and we must remember the defense usually wins championships and well he knows what we all know that love this sport is defense win the championships and and you know you know it from playing on so many teams, but he his his thoughts are always so simple. And then you go, yep, that's why he was so great. It's it was it was the way he taught simple ideas and made them part of your team. Completely. And, and it, it, just watching that video, the best coaches, because the, the 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 team takes on the persona and the the feeling of the coach, and it's not necessarily about the X's and O's. Of the coaches that you play play for, but it's just about what kind of feeling and an attitude do they convey to the team, and do they do they uh, pass on to the team? And you could tell by his voice; it's just everything he said was so calming and 
and, and, you know, if you're sitting there in a huddle and you hear him talking about, you know, just do your best and, and you're going to be out, you're going to go out there and be calm and play your best. So, um, you know, I, that's why I, the coaches like Bobby Knight, they go out and they're yelling at the players. It, it's, it's a, it's a select few people that can play under that pressure and, and actually get the best out of their, their players who are, you know, when the coach is just in their ear and that intent. So, I, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a wizard of Westwood. What can I say? That's it, it's, it's so interesting because um, it seemed like you guys were all just staying in the moment in that 95 game. Although that was something you did all season. I mean, you guys, I think you lost two games. One of those was overturned later against Cal. So, you rarely lost, but you guys were always, you know, getting up and down the court and doing your thing. And it and it seemed like when you're faced with Arkansas, and I, I forgot what was it, 40 minutes of hell or know, or something like that, right? And and you guys were like, okay, please, we like that hell because this is that allows us to get out and play our game. Yeah. And um, and I just wondering, like, was that kind of was tailor made for you guys to feel comfortable in that big of an environment, and then to get out and just run and do your thing? Yeah. I, I think for us to play against that team in particular, uh, it, it made it easy for all of us, especially with Tyus going 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 out in the first like minute of or two five minutes of the game with that uh, wrist injury. The fact that they played such a high pace up and down game, uh, which was completely suited for for our, our you know the, the people that that were on our roster, uh, it it doesn't give you much time to think, you know, it's all about reaction. And now you're just doing what you've been doing since you were five years old and just playing basketball. And, uh, you know, we didn't have time to think about Tyus being off the court and, and, you know, different things happen. If a mistake, if a, or a mistake or turnover happens, you don't have time to think about it. You just get right back into play. And on a, on a stage as big as that, that, I mean, that's the only way I, I would want to play. It's just, it was very enjoyable to play that game. Uh, you, and you did. You you got you took what the game gave you because I just I started to watch that game um, the other day and it's it's a terrible YouTube video that's there because you're in the pre age of when everything was covered perfectly and and survives today. But um, you did. You took what the game gave you. You were just hitting it, your same game that you always had with those pull up shot, getting that rebound, kick in, and and it was it was beautiful. You got to tell me about that reverse dunk, which in my mind pretty much sealed the game because it wasn't just like you went down and gave him a 10 point lead going down the stretch. You went down and was like, okay, look at, look who you just picked a fight with game over people. I mean, that was a beauty. Um, and why did you like what that took some balls to reverse dunk? It did, but you know, like I said, like I, I've been dunking six, since seventh grade. So for, <laughs> for me, it, was, it, 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 that wasn't just out of the ordinary, but I did, I, there was a guy that played, uh, James Gray, that played for uh, Westchester. That was a, a friend of mine, and he was a little older, older than I was. They used to call him Gumby. And they were playing against Crenshaw in the state, in the uh, city championship when I was in high school. And I went to that game, and in, this, in, this, in that game, the city championship, he did a reverse dunk and then came down just like I did. And the entire like stadium went nuts. I mean, it was just uncontrollable. And, um, you know, so I always had that in the back of my head that if I ever got an opportunity to do that on that, on that kind of stage, I want to do something special. And, and that, I mean, now that I, when I look back on it, and I hadn't looked back, honestly, of that game since, like, now that I have kids, I kind of, you know, will watch it every once in a while. Like, if it came on classic sports or something, I'll 
say, come in here and watch daddy when he was a baby. And, you know, they'll come in and watch two minutes and say, okay, great, dad. Can I play Minecraft? But, uh, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it, it, it was, you know, it was just something that I, I did naturally. Yeah, that, oh, that's funny. I know, uh, I wish the uh, tapes of me um, performing at a medium level in a YMCA league survived because <laughs> then I could show my kids, but they disintegrated because that was a long time ago. All right, up next, we're going to bring you part of our interview with Coach Wooden's grandson-in-law, Craig Impleman. So in this interview, you will hear Denny and Craig talk about Lute Olsen, who was the coach of the 1997 NCAA champions, the Arizona Wildcats. We're going to do a little video and I'm going to introduce um, a coach because I know how many coaches you deal with. And then we're going to talk a little bit about that coach's impact. And then we could circle around and talk about coach, you know, how coach Wooden would regard this coach. So the first one, we're going to get to McClendon, right? We are. So the first one we're going to do is Lute Olson. So, oh, wow. so Marley's going to drop this one in. And of course we just lost uh, Lute Olson uh, over these past two wow. weeks. We lost great coach, two great coaches, which Lute Olson and John Thompson. So, Marley, I'll play this one. So Lute Olson, he was a, a North Dakota kid. He grew up in North Dakota. Uh, I think it was Mayville, North Dakota. You know, it was interesting. He lost both his um, dad and his brother to, ups, you know, kind of wild circumstance. But he also won a state title there, met his future wife there. But, Lute, you know, also after he started coaching, um, coaching, he, he had his way from the Midwest out to California, and he ended up, coaching at like Western High School in Anaheim, also at Marina Huntington Beach High School. And, and he worked his way up to Long Beach City College. And at Long Beach City College, he thought he found his landing spot. He, you know, he took him to like, he won 103 games and 22 losses. Like he was dominating then, 1971 JC National Championship. And that for then Long Beach State identified him. And he came in after Jerry Tarkanian was at Long Beach State, but he didn't like what they, they, they kind of the way they set him up. He headed out to uh, Iowa. He, he made his name in Iowa. Um, it was the house that Luke built. They built this big arena um, for him. He took the Iowa to the um, 1980 NCAA semifinals, finally found his way into Arizona. Now, at Arizona, he took over a team that had their worst record ever, and he turned them into immediate um, winners. They went to 23 consecutive NCAA tournaments on his watch. 1997, they won the national championship. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. They had such great players there, uh, you know, as like Steve Kerr and Mike Bibby, Jason Terry, Gilbert Arenas. He, um, I'll tell you what, he uh, he also had Sean Elliott. How could you forget Sean Elliott? He could play Richard Jefferson, Luke Walton. So he had all these great players, and Lute Olson really created something in the desert that's going to stand the test of time. We lost him, as mentioned, over the last few days. Um, Craig, what do you remember about Lute Olson, his career, and what he built in the desert. One of the greatest human beings you could ever know. Yeah. So if you're going to talk about, and, and you know, I refer to John Wooden. John Wooden's just an unbelievable person. Ludos is another guy just like John Wooden. I mean, unbelievable. Now, basketball influence-wise, almost a mini John Wooden. I would say Wooden was definitely a mentor to Lute. Lute was at Marina when yeah. high school when John Wooden was at UCLA. Like it. Okay. And he really modeled his basketball system. And, you know, Coach Wooden learned from Piggy Lambert, sure. who learned actually from Naismith. We'll get to that later on. <laughs> but uh, 
certainly Lou Dolson's basketball mentor was John Wooden. A couple great stories. Uh, man, there's so many Lou Dolson stories. I'll give you a couple quick hitters. Uh, two coaches invited John Wooden to come to their practice and critique them, cr critique their team and tell them what they were doing wrong. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski and Lou Dolson. Mm. Uh, <laughs> second one, it's a funny story. Uh, Special Olympics charity dinner okay. uh, at, down at the Wooden Classic. Big dinner. And uh, they're auctioning off uh, a lunch with John Wooden. Okay. Now, you know, Lou is sitting there, and Lou Olson and John Wooden are best friends. And, you know, somebody bids and somebody bids, and Lute just keeps on up in the bidding to have a lunch with John Wooden. Lute does. <laughs> he wow. gives 10000 bucks to the Special Olympics uh, to have a lunch with John Wooden. Uh, okay? Yeah. Well, that's not enough. Because now the guy who's running the auction goes, oh, well, Lute's got one. So let's do another one. Let's split it. I know that. I used to be an auctioneer. So they start out. And same deal, right? And they're sitting there, and uh, you know it gets to five thousand for Special Olympics, and uh, Lute bumps it to ten thousand, gives another ten thousand to Special Olympics, wow! And then goes over and gives the the lunch to the guy who had been the uh, oh, second man. highest bidder. That's a beautiful story. I like that. That's beautiful. So now go fast forward. I'm putting on a wooden uh, course down in uh, at the University of Arizona in their gymnasium, what's called a team yeah. camp, where we bring people in and we have them do an hour of basketball, hour in a classroom, right? And, uh, you know, budget's a little bit tight. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, Lute, and I'm not, I know Lute Olson, great friends with John Wooden, but I'm not, you know, not, like I don't, right. I know him. Hey, Craig, how you doing? But I'm not, you know, hanging right. out with a guy. I call Coach Olson. And I say, Coach, you know, I'm going to be over here. I don't have any budget to pay you to speak. He's probably getting 25, 30 grand a pop to go speak anywhere. Sure. And uh, I said, you know, if you happen to be on campus uh, and you could pop your head in, it'd be a big thrill. Okay. You know, here's the – well, you already know the rest of the story, right? Luke pops his head in for an hour and a half for free, gives his time, and makes it a day that everybody – I love uh, it. I love Remember. it. Like you say, you know, 25, 30 grand a pop. And I got you for some food from Casablanca. I would like to compliment me <laughs> yeah, on my right. business schools. You know. So, uh, oh, okay. Here's a Lute Olson John Wooden tie-in. Yes, please. Uh, for those coaches out there. Yep. If you're a coach after a game and you're giving long speeches – and see, John Woodman would never tell you this. Ludos, they're too nice. I, I'm I have no tact. I spit <laughs> when I talk, but I gotta be true to myself. <laughs> if you're giving long speeches after games when you lose, stop it. Please stop it. If you're giving long speeches after games when you yep. win, yep. stop it. <laughs> so Larry Farmer was asked. What did John Wooden say after a loss? And Farmer said, well, I remember exactly what he said because, you know, when he I played, we were 89-1 and one and only had yeah, one Yeah, he guy. was 89-1. and one. And uh, best record of any player in history college basketball. That's right. And it was back at South Bend. We lost to Notre Dame. Yeah. And Coach Wooden walked in the locker room, and he said, 
We got whipped. Let's get a shower and get out of here. Nothing but good things about the other team. Let's go. And that was it. That was it. So I talking to Luke, and Luke was asked that same question in front of the group. Of course, he said the same thing. You know, it's after a loss. My talk is about a minute long. Let's get a shower and get out of here. Because you're not going to accomplish anything in the locker room after a game other than to hear yourself talk and make yourself feel better and bore the players and make the parents mad they have to wait for an hour and a half while you're talking. Yeah, quite true. Uh, where you're going to get it fixed is in practice the next week that's on right. the court. That's so right. That's a, that's a Lute Olsen, John Wooden tie-in. Extremely I like it. Um, similar guys. So oh, he, and by, by the way, I, Luke is on my list of guys coming up that I'm going to write about. Uh, his book, and I can't remember the name of it, it's the only book that he wrote. I read it twice. Is fantastic. So Wait, get it, you read, read, you read it. it twice, and you can't remember it. I don't remember the title of it. Yeah, no, I'm no. I, Come on, I Am. Hey, it is what it is. The guy, <laughs> but unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, five, five Final Fours, and um, you know, I just, I just found his life really interesting. I think he must have been shaped, not unlike Coach Wooden, because you came up hard in the Midwest. Yep, and, and he did too. You know, his father was affected by World War One and poison gas. His brother, uh, Lute's brother, died in a tragic like um, uh, accident with a. I didn't know that. A farm farm equipment or something along these lines, and he yeah. and he lost that. You know, but you know he has those kind of roots. You know that that led him to be able to to make it out here out west, and then to build you know such great championship program. And he was humble always like, play, coach, coach, humble, hardworking, yeah, great guy. Yep. walks into your home and you, he's trying to recruit your son. You want your son to go right. spend the next four years with that guy. That's right. Not, not, not because of his basketball skills, but because that's the guy you want your son to be around as a role model. That's right. RIP to Luke. So as we wrap up this March Madness episode, we thought we would end with a really fun piece. So this is one of our episodes of our Never Seen LA, where Denny and I cover sports murals by renowned street artist Jonas Never. So we visit these murals and we do a one-take stand-up with some context behind the mural. And this particular one is at Tower Pizza, which is close to LAX, and it was one of Jonas Never's first works. So in this particular mural um, is Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. And we focus on the 1990 LMU basketball team where Jonas Never was actually a ball boy for. So you're going to hear some great historical context of that inspirational 1990 LMU basketball team. So we hope you enjoy. You got Hank Gathers, number 44 there, and then number 30 um, is uh, Bo Kimball. Great story behind these two and a great story what they went through in 1990. They've been friends since high school. As a matter of fact, they went to two Philadelphia uh, Public League championship games. One was uh, they came in, they lost, I think, in the finals of Pooh Richardson and one of those teams. And then the other, they won uh, the championship. And that was for Dobnins Tech out of North Philly. Tough area of town, but basketball is what kept these guys on the straight and narrow, of course. And they both earned scholarships and came out to USC. They thought that that was a place they're going to land. But sooner than not, the coaches were dismissed from USC. And the new coach that came in was George Ravley, and he gave him make, he asked him to make a quick decision about renewing their scholarships. Little did he know he shouldn't have pushed those buttons because right across town, right up the hill from here, uh, from where we stand right now, was Loyola Marymount University. And Paul Westhead was the coach there, and he was doing something significant. 
Paul Westhead was a Philly guy. He was creating this crazy up-tempo offense. And these two guys fit it to a T. For three straight years, they led the nation in scoring. Paul Westhead created this offense where they would traditionally shoot inside of 10 seconds, no problem. Right? Many times faster. They would full court press the whole game in order to get the other the game up tempo and to hopefully wear out the other team. They would run as a team conditioning drills on the beaches close to here, uphill on, on the sand beach just to get their legs. So they always knew they were in better condition. Sometimes they'd let the other team score just so they could inbound and score more quickly and run a team out. Led the nation three years in scoring, but it was 1990 was the magical year. On the year, they ended up 26-6, and six, but they went 13-1 and one in the WCC, the West Coast Conference, and, and, um, the, and took uh, the, the championship of that, but it was in a, in, in a very tragic way. Payne Gathers, who uh, was leading the nation in rebounding, his buddy uh, Bo was leading the nation in scoring, uh, Hank tragically died. He had, he had a, a heart condition, um, may or may not have been scaling back on his meds, and he died on the court in Gersten Pavilion uh, on the campus of Loyola Marymount. It was really sad. It was in the semifinals of the WCC uh, Conference Tournament. Uh, they were still awarded the championship on that based on their regular season approach. And the team uh, voted in the locker room to move forward. And it was there that the magic continued. Um, a couple of things that were so unique is one, they said, yeah, Hank would want us to go on. So they did. And um, Bo Kimball, who's a right-handed player, for his first free throw of every game in honor of his lefty friend, he would take left-handed in the NCAA tournament. I'm going to shoot my first free throw left-handed, and it's because Hank Gavis tried so hard to, to improve on his left hand, and it was a remembrance of Hank. It was something I want to do for this year. And the big story has been Bo Kimball, who was only 6 of 17 in the first half, but has begun to bomb away. And as you heard him say before we took a timeout, Bo is going to take his first free throw left-handed in honor of his friend, Hank Gavin. It was such a bold and beautiful action. Every time I saw it, it made me tear up. But they had these three great wins to get um, all the way to the quarterfinals of the NCAAs. They beat New Mexico State. Then when they beat Michigan, the defending champions, and they ran them off the court, nobody's seen anything like it. It was one of the great upsets in NCAA history. They got another win, I think, over Alabama before the eventual champions of UNLV, the great TARC team, uh, took them down in 1990. And that was just like a run for the ages. So we hope you guys enjoyed our March Madness episode. If you liked that Never Seen LA, you guys can go check out all of them on our website, uh, youtube.com slash SSDL. And we hope to catch you guys next week. Have a great week, guys. Bye. Thanks for watching and listening. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is produced by Christine Jinbo and me, Marley Rice. Directed by Chris M. Alport with studio support from Alpha Command Unit and shot by bad boy Bobby McCall. Original music, courtesy of Lennon Music Production, and original images, courtesy of Sienna Lennon Photography. A big thank you to all of our contributors. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. You can find us on audio platforms everywhere and the High School Narrative iOS app. You can also view Denny's shows on Roku, Apple TV, and Fire TV. Make sure to press that subscribe button, give us a review, leave a comment. It will really help us grow the show. Hey, you know what else would help us grow the show? Hustle on over to patreon.com slash Denny Lennon to get some never-before-seen videos, pictures, interviews, and more. We are all over social media and constantly sending out clips on Facebook, conducting fun polls on Twitter, going live on Instagram, and more. 
To find all our social media links, hustle on over to sportsstoriesdl.com. SSDL proudly supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation and the Heroes Movement. The My Stuff Bags Foundation, with the help of thousands of people across the country, provides children in unfortunate situations with new belongings and new hope through its innovative My Stuff Bags program. Heroes Movement is a nonprofit that bridges the gap from therapy to getting strong again through small group workouts for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces for free. Links to how you can support and help these foundations can be found on our website. We want to give a big thank you to our partners of the show. So, as Coach Lennon would say, any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me, Marley, at info at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Sports Stories thanks all of our followers and listeners. And we will, we will see, see you, you next time. time. Hey, thanks, Marley. Thanks, Chris. Stop clowning around and go watch Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Kick it out, book. <laughs>